Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 22 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 1st of July. And Leon, we're talking to Scott Schober today. Scott Schober, yes. Uh, Scott Schober is a American wireless cybersecurity expert. He's the CEO and president of Barclay Veritronic Systems in America. And he's talking to us all about cyber wars and security systems. One of the biggest things in the non-political world, I think. That's right. And then after that, we've got Saul Eslake. That's right. And Saul Eslake has got some fascinating views about the Brexit vote and what that means for the global economy and what that means for Australia. Okay. And uh, now Scott Schober. Scott Schober, uh, BV Electronics is right at the forefront of the fight against uh, hacking, and uh, you're saying it's getting worse. Tell us about it. Yeah, it, it absolutely has. We, we've all heard the headlines of the major breaches over and over again, the targets, the Home Depots, the uh, you, you name it. But now what's starting to happen is the hackers are getting more and more savvy, and they're starting to do is target small businesses. And, of course, we ourselves were, were a target, and I'm hearing more and more small business owners that I'm talking to, and it's not just here in the U.S., it's really global, that are becoming targets of you know, everything from identity theft, uh, credit cards compromised, debit cards. Uh, there, there's a huge problem as of late with uh, wire fraud throughout the different banks, which is becoming a, an alarming problem. Ransomware now has got some new strains where they're targeting many, many different individuals at different levels, not just the PC now, but also our mobile devices. So the problem, I wish I could say it's getting better, despite our efforts to try to educate people, warn people, as well as many other experts in the industry. We're finding the problem is just getting worse and worse because these cyber hackers are looking to find any vulnerabilities they can and just exploit them to the best of their ability. You were, uh, BB Electronics was involved with the target hacking, weren't you? You, you were called in when that yeah. happened. Uh, tell us about that. That was terrible. Yeah, the target hacking, actually, I, I remember it um, vividly because that was back in uh, December 2013 timeframe. And that one, I think, was an exceptional hack because really you had nothing to benchmark it or compare it against. It was such a monumental attack, number one. And as they were uncovering many of the things, they started to realize the scope and magnitude, the sheer number of cards that were compromised. And it wasn't over a single breach. It was over a period of time. And the well, what happened really in that in instance, they traced it back really to remote access, which is often the case where there's um, vulnerabilities discovered and again exploited through a third party that had that was a true vendor. It was an HVAC, you know, air conditioning and heating company for the target stores that had access to their actual secure servers. And, and that's how initially they got into the servers to plant the malware. And the malware was then used on the, the POS, the point of sale terminals to then basically scarf, collect, record, and then send out remotely all of the swiped credit card transactions, basically anything that had a mag strip when it was swiped through their point of sale systems, and this again was propagated throughout all the target stores, so they were able to collect 
millions and millions of credit card uh, information, not just the card number, but they were able to get the name, the expiration date, all that information that they needed so that they could then put those together and list and then the dark web, they could illegally sell them for profit. And they made a lot of money doing this over time. So it was it was pretty staggering. And what, what I'm always fascinated about um, is what it did to Target as a company. Besides setting a precedent, how bad things really can get. Uh, it, it really helps us to put into perspective the importance of having good security plan and probably more importantly, if you are breached, how do you respond? Target really flimmed and flammed in, in the beginning weeks when this all was being unfolded. They didn't have a good plan. They didn't fully understand what happened to them. And there were some bad mistakes which really hurt the brand and the PR message for Target. Stores started to emptying up because everybody panicked. People began canceling cards and not shopping at Target. So it took a huge hit on the, the stock price initially and recovered since, of course. Scott, this hack there on Target, and I imagine mm -hmm. a lot of others as well, goes on or went on for quite a while. Yeah. What, yeah. Why wasn't it discovered or is there any way of discovering it? What, what should be done to stop this sort of stuff? Yeah, great question. Well, well, back then they really didn't have as much in play as they do now. They did have um, some alerts that there was problems going on, but the the problem was really brought to their attention that there was a breach, and really it, it came about through um, reports from from Brian Krebs, a fellow cybersecurity expert and a friend of mine, uh, and, and he often will will get tips from different banks. Uh, on a higher percentage of people that have had compromised cards, and then he he really broke the story at the scope and magnitude of this breach of what happened. So they really didn't have themselves information there that they were responding to. There were actually alerts that they were receiving months ahead of time from the different uh, analysis. They have real-time threat analysis systems that were in play there, but they kind of didn't pay attention to it and take action it's kind of like crying wolf. When you see this every day and the, the red flashing on your screen, you start to ignore it after a while. And I think to some extent that may have happened until they realized, oh, no, this is serious. This compromised our entire customer base. Then they took action and started to introduce little by little what they believed happened. First, they believed there was a compromise, but no credit cards were really truly compromised. Then they came back and kind of said, well, we were wrong. It's larger than we thought, more information was taken than we thought. Then, it, then it, it turned into mass chaos when they really kind of came clean and said, here's the full scope of what really happened. So that's part of the problem. The reporting of it, it slowly unfolded like peeling an onion. So nobody had a true picture of what really happened. Nowadays, what's imperative, especially in the retail sector that takes a lot of credit cards, is having real-time threat detection tools in place so they're super high speed. Most of these are actual hardware devices there that are placed along the server. So they're detecting any type of fraudulent activity, malware, viruses, different strands that could happen so they could stop it and react very quickly. Those things were not put in place. 
back in 2013, December 2013, that what was put in place was unfortunately somewhat ignored and not responded to. So it, it was kind of several things that really added up to be uh, the ultimate mess, if you think about it, for, for poor Target. The irony of it, and this part always amazes me because we, we, we sell a lot of tools to the different retail channels in the past, is Target was prior to this attack, several years prior, they actually had the technology, chip and pin technology, before any of their competitors, before the Walmarts of the world and other retailers, they were putting in chip and pin technology. They started to deploy it, and they realized consumers were complaining. It takes too long in, in line. The costs were very expensive, and they abandoned the entire project. Several years later, guess what? Target became a target, no pun intended, and look what ended up happening. <laughs> now they're going full circle, and guess guess who's who's ahead of the pack again? Target has got chip and pin in the United States being deployed before all of the other retailers. Other retailers are slowly putting in chip and signature, where you have to insert your card sideways, and, and that way it'll talk to the embedded microprocessor, that, that chip there. The pin, that's an actual code that you put in, it's uh, into the actual terminal that's unique identifier for you. Why is that so important? Because that is a an additional layer of security, and security in layers is so important in the world to prevent yourself from getting hacked, and I've learned that firsthand. So two-factor authentication, or also called multi-factor authentication, is exactly what that is, and targets learned the hard way. So chip and pin is now being deployed across all the Target retail uh, stores now for a much safer credit card transaction. So chip and pin in technology is important for, I'd imagine, retail. I'd imagine it would be very important in banks and financial services. But, I mean, what's scary is that, I mean, every day I read about a new brand of ransomware and it seems to be more sophisticated than the last one and yeah. more undetectable. And um, what, how do we deal with this? Yeah, you make a, a fabulous point. It's The landscape has changed so much. Last year, January 2015, I had a great interview on uh, NPR radio, which is really a, a worldwide radio station, and they honed in one hour just on ransomware. And I was on with uh, 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 Sherry McGuire of Symantec and also my friend Brian Krebs, and we discussed ransomware, the ins and the outs. And back then, there were there were a number of different strands that were effective. But now, there are so many hundreds, if not thousands, of new strands that have come about. It's amazing. And people are starting to learn about it and realize they need to take action immediately to prevent being a victim from ransomware. And the number one thing I always have to, to, to tell people is, Back up your data. If you don't have a backup plan in place, if you are a victim of ransomware, there is really nothing you can do with the exception of paying the ransom. And if, if, if your listeners are familiar with ransomware in brief, it's really when, a, when malware gets onto your PC or your mobile device, and it's usually through a phishing scam where you click on it, the malware is downloaded and the strain that's ransomware, and again, there's CryptoLocker and a whole bunch of others, it encrypts all your vital data. So your PC, so your mobile phone is rendered useless until you get the magic key to decrypt the files and use your data again and have your family photos and such. And the, the ransom that's demanded is typically 
Bitcoin, which is anonymous digital currency. So that way, the hackers can remain anonymous and not be caught. And they sell a lot of different packages over the dark web that you can purchase. And for under $100, you can be in business to be a hacker and actually dispense ransomware. And they've set up customer services and helplines so you can be efficient at collecting Bitcoins. Tell people where to buy Bitcoins, how much to charge, what's effective, how to actually propagate the different malware. So it's a very well-organized, think about it as organized crime or mafia for hackers. And it's affecting many, many different industries globally now. In fact, I think just this first quarter alone in the United States, there's $240 million that's been reported taken in, in ransomware heists. It's that big of a problem. And again, it's a global epidemic. Right. And so uh, companies need to be very cognizant of this and, yeah. uh, and take measures such as chip and pin. Yep. For, for credit cards, they got to they gotta keep that in mind. For mobile phones, for computer use, it's very important. They need to keep in mind with ransomware. They got to be careful where they surf on the internet. And probably most important, the most effective method is these phishing scams. And again, a phishing scam is basically where they embed a file into an email and it's sent to you and it looks like it's from somebody you know. Maybe it's your bank or your financial advisor, a reputable company, and they copy the logo, the graphics, even the wording so it looks legitimate and it wants you to click on this embedded link and it does a redirect to a website that almost looks like the real bank that you normally do for online banking or whatever else the case is. And that's where they download this ransomware in that process. So you got to be careful what you click on and be extremely careful. Uh, uh, you can buy malware checkers and virus checkers. Typically, that software catches about 15% of the malware that comes through. So you have to be very careful because that means what? 85% is coming through to your PC, to your mobile phone, getting through your firewall, your, your, your virus scan, your malware checker. So it's important not to then go that next step and actually click on it. I'll share a scary statistic that I came across and I share in my book, Hacked Again. It's how effective is phishing attacks. And when you start thinking about it globally, each and every day, every single day, there's approximately 16 million phishing attacks launched. Of that 16 million phishing attacks that are launched, 8 million of them get through. In other words, they get through the, the firewalls and virus checkers and malware, so on and so forth. It's about half. Of that, people that actually see them, there is about 80,000 that people will actually then in turn click on. So 80,000 people per day fall victim to a phishing attack that gets through all of our security measures and everything else. That shows you how powerful of a hacking tool that phishing attacks can be to launch ransomware and other malware. And ask yourself, what does it cost to send an email? They have right automated programs that can send out millions of emails a minute. And they could go in the dark web and they could buy lists and lists of emails 
very cost-effectively. Now, now, one another statistic that's interesting to remember, if you do fall victim of a ransomware attack and you say, well, it's only 300 bucks or 600 bucks, I'm just going to pay it because my data is so precious, you embolden the cyber hackers. And number two, your name now gets put on a, another list and says, hey, I am a sucker. I pay and they're going to go after you again. But this time they're going to go after you with a different strain of malware of ransomware to target you. So a lot of times people that are victims of ransomware become repeat victims because they know that they're soft and easy targets and they pay up. So, so what does that mean? They're going to target the elderly, maybe those that are naive. They're going to target institutions. It could be law enforcement that has sensitive data and they may not have a good backup plan. They may go after universities and colleges. That's what's happening globally they're starting now to narrowly slice and target different groups of individuals that tend to give in to the ransomware demands and pay up because it's so lucrative now. Scott Schober, that's amazing information. Amazing the work you're doing, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, and anytime. Thank you again for having me on. And if anyone has any further questions, they could visit the website there. It's, it's hackedagain.com. And I go through all this detail in, in my book there, what happened to me as a victim, and really practical tips that every person, consumer can use, as well as business owners, to stay safe. Well, that's pretty good. And it, you know, as far as I can see, cybercrime is only going to get more uh, active. Absolutely. And it's really good to have that sort of information about what we can do about it. Yeah, good practical stuff, what to do if you're, if you're ransomed and so on and so forth. I thought his stuff was really, really valuable. Yeah, indeed. And uh, everybody, you know, be you a mum and pop shop or uh, a big corp, you need to know how to defend yourself. That's right. And now Saul. Saul Leslie. Now, markets have imploded. The pound has been falling massively. It's uh, down to about a dollar thirty-one, and there's talk that the light at the end of the tunnel could be a train because some analysts are saying it could go down as low as a dollar five. Stock markets around the world have been hammered, and UK's had its uh, credit rating cut. So, what's your view? I think the the size of the market reaction tells you how much of a surprise this outcome was to financial markets, who like the commentators and the bet markets had assumed that the British people would vote to remain in the European Union. Markets are bore surprises. They react to things that they haven't factored in. And this was something they hadn't factored in. So the reaction has been large. And the reaction has been negative as well as large because overwhelmingly the opinion in financial markets is that this is a bad thing for Britain. Uh, It's a bad thing for the rest of Europe. And potentially it's a bad thing for the entire world, depending on how the world is able to react to all of this. For Britain, it's a bad thing in the short term, because it may mean that Britain is less able to attract the foreign investment it needs to finance a current account deficit that is now running at 7% of GDP. And a lot of that investment has been by companies who've seen Britain as a sensible place to base operations that are targeting customers across the whole of Europe, not just within the UK itself. And of course, if Britain does now leave the EU, then Britain will be much less suitable as a base for those 
those kind of activities than it traditionally has been. Longer term, it's perceived by markets as bad for Britain because Britain will have trouble negotiating access to the single European market for both goods and importantly services, including financial services, unless, as indicated by the examples of Norway and Switzerland, it agrees to terms that would in effect fly in the face of the reasons why so many Britons voted to leave the European Union out of an objection to free movement of labour and capital in particular across international borders, concerns about uncontrolled controlled immigration from other EU countries and the like, and continuing to pay into the EU budget as Norway and Switzerland do without having any say in the formation of all the rules that govern the operation of the single market. Indeed, if, as is possible down the track, both Scotland and later Northern Ireland decide to leave the UK in order ultimately to remain in the EU, then what's left could represent the smallest United Kingdom as a political entity since 1603, when the thrones of Scotland and England were united under James VI and I. So it's very hard to see how there's any good for the UK itself coming out of this. Many people feel it will be bad for the remainder of the EU as well, because Britain was, for the most part, a voice for more rational market-oriented policies within Europe, along with Germany, the Netherlands and the Nordic members of the EU, in contrast to the more state-oriented regulatory dispositions of France and the southern European countries. And that may be why the share market falls in countries like Germany have been as severe as they have. Third, it could be bad for the world if the financial market reaction, particularly falling share prices, uh, starts to look like some of the developments we saw in global financial markets during the financial crisis of 2007 through 2009. And while it's unlikely that share markets would fall by as much as they did then in response to this development, offsetting that is the fact that central banks and governments around the world have far fewer resources to cope with even more modest declines in share markets than they did back then because they have used up almost all of the ammunition that they did have at that stage in order to fend off the worst possibilities raised by the global financial crisis. And of course, finally, if the kind of anti-establishment sentiments that were undoubtedly part of the reasons why a majority of the British people voted to leave the European Union are reflected in voting on the other side of the Atlantic in the US presidential elections in November, then the possibility of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States come January 2017 is something that would fill most rational people with horror. And fortunately, it seems that Donald Trump is falling behind Hillary Clinton in the opinion polls covering the US presidential race and his reaction to the Brexit vote doesn't seem to have enhanced his standing with American voters. But another important lesson from the Brexit referendum, as it was from the earlier UK general elections last year, is that the opinion polls can be a very poor guide to how people eventually vote. So that's a concern that is going to linger in financial markets, probably until after the votes are counted in the US presidential election in early November. This is interesting because, in a way, 
Britain is, has got this classic prisoner's dilemma issue in front of it. I mean, the longer it takes to negotiate its way out of the EU, the more its EU members will see the value that Britain's prowess in financial terms uh, can bring to the market. On the other hand, the longer it continues, it becomes a problem for the British economy and uh, British companies will start looking at relocating to places like the Republic of Ireland and Europe to uh, to work with uh, uh, the European Union. Now, to my way of thinking, this is a classic Nash game theory scenario where the players have to come out with the least bad solution but the reality is this is a divorce and I have yet to hear of any divorces amicable and uh, this will end up very messy and expensive what's your view? Uh, well I think all of that's right and we have to remember that there are multiple and potentially conflicting motives on the part of the parties to this divorce in particular there are views among the European Union that uh, this should be done both quickly and not especially generously to the UK for fear of giving heart to elements in other EU countries who would also like to have a referendum and see their countries leave the EU. These concerns arise in the Netherlands, for example, and in France, and more recently in Finland. If the EU gave Britain what was seen as a good deal in exiting the European Union, then that might embolden others in in other countries to think that the consequences of leaving the EU were relatively small. And for those who remain committed to the so-called European project, as France and Germany in particular do, uh, that's a powerful incentive to be fairly harsh taskmasters when it comes to the negotiations with Britain that will begin when Britain invokes Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. And that treaty provides that the term for exit could take as long as two years. Britain has thus far signalled that it's not going to be in any hurry to invoke Article 50. David Cameron, the outgoing Prime Minister, says that is something that will be left to his successor. And his most likely successor, Boris Johnson, also appears to be indicating that he's in no hurry to invoke that. I suspect one of the reasons why he's in no hurry to invoke Article 50 is that he, like some of the other most prominent Leave campaigners, actually haven't given much thought to what they would actually do in the event that they won the referendum as they now have. George Soros has uh, said it's uh, absolutely irrefutable that the European Union will bust up unless there's massive reform. What's your view of it? Uh, I don't think that's necessarily right. Uh, People, especially in financial markets, often fail to realise the powerful non-economic motives that have lain behind the creation of the European Union and the desire for greater European integration since the original Treaty of Rome in the 1950s. The driving force behind European integration, at least as far as continental European economies are concerned, is the desire to break the cycle that goes back to at least the early 1600s, whereby at what had been roughly 50-year intervals, one big European country invades and lays waste to its neighbours, giving rise to millions of deaths and ultimately devastation across the entire continent. It's the desire to break that sorry history at which the European Union has been a resounding success, even if it hasn't succeeded in as many other areas as people would like, that is behind the drive that 
continental European leaders have been showing ever since the early 1950s. And perhaps because Britain never experienced any of that, probably not since 1066, uh, that desire isn't as closely felt in the UK and isn't reported to English-speaking readers in other parts of the world, including Australia, by English-speaking journalists who tend to report on Europe from London, uh, as uh, perhaps is felt on the continent. And so what's your view ultimately? What will come of this? Well, it's hard to see any good coming from it. Uh, Certainly not for the UK. I doubt for Europe and uh, I doubt even much for Australia. And it's hard to be precise about how much bad could come from it. As far as Australia is concerned, as I say, I don't think there's any good that comes from this other than perhaps it will be cheaper for Australians to take holidays in the UK. And it may be that Australians face fewer hassles getting through customs and immigration at Heathrow than we do at the moment, despite having the Queen in our passport and the British flag in the corner of ours, which has never seemed to count much when you land at Heathrow to the chagrin of many Australian travellers. But as far as direct trade links are concerned between Australia and the UK, they're fairly small. Uh, Britain accounts for less than 3% of our exports and less than 4% of our imports. It has been an important source of and destination for investment. Uh, Britain accounts for about 16% of foreign investment into Australia, uh, although that is down from 23% a decade ago. Britain's also an important destination for Australian investment abroad. About 23% of our investment abroad is located in the UK. But as I mentioned before, that has been principally in many cases because the UK has been seen as a desirable and familiar base for companies companies that want to do business across the whole 300 million people member European Union and many Australian companies like companies from other parts of the world will be rethinking that strategy. The fall in sterling against the Australian dollar probably doesn't matter too much except for our universities for whom Britain is an important competitor for attracting foreign students. But outside of that area, there's not a lot of direct competition between Australian and British firms in third markets. Perhaps the greatest concerns for Australia are the potential knock-on effects for world financial markets that would be echoed here in Australia of ongoing declines in share markets. And we know from the experience during the financial crisis that if share markets do fall a lot over a long period of time, that does have an impact on household confidence and household spending and saving decisions because Australians are significantly exposed to the Australian and global share markets through their compulsory superannuation savings. Another possible concern is that paralleling the fall in sterling has been big rises in both the US dollar and the Japanese yen. Now, the rise in the US dollar and the turmoil on financial markets is likely to prompt the US Federal Reserve yet again to defer increases in US interest rates, which may see further unwelcome upward pressure on the Australian dollar. That could also be likely if the very sharp rise in the Japanese yen prompts the Bank of Japan to move Japanese interest rates even further into negative territory, which would also potentially put upward pressure on the Australian dollar. The Reserve Bank says, rightly, that upward pressure on the Australian dollar complicates the transition that Australia's economy is trying to achieve away from growth led by the mining sector to growth led by a broader range of domestic economic activities. And it may even force the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates to yet 
new record lows in order to offset that upward pressure on the exchange rate, even though there's no compelling or convincing domestic economic policy reason for the Reserve Bank to cut rates any further. So, Liz Lake, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure as always. Well, what do you think, Leon? Did you say it's a very, very good roundup of uh, the early prospects? I thought it was absolutely brilliant. He really summed it up, didn't he? Yes, he did. And it's given lots of food for thought. Yep, very much. Anyway, and in this uh, dangerous time, let's get on with the news. Well, Gary, Britain's shock vote to pull out of the European Union wiped $2.1 trillion or 2.8 trillion Aussie from global equity markets on Fridays. Traders panicked in the face of a new threat to the global economy. Markets have since been recovering, but there's going to be a lot of volatility around, Gary. And uh, share markets fell over 17%. Royal Bank of Scotland fell as much as 25%. The UK has been stripped of its last AAA rating as credit agencies stand and pause warn of the economic, fiscal and constitutional risks the country now faces as a result of the referendum result. Uh, the two-notch downgrade came with a warning that S&B could slash its rating again. It described the result of the vote as a seminal event that could lead to a less predictable, stable and effective policy framework in the UK. The agency added that the vote to remain in Scotland and Northern Ireland creates wider constitutional issues for the country as a whole. And the, the downgrade was swiftly followed by a cut to the UK's credit score from rival agency Fitch. Fitch cut the UK's rating from AA to AA+. The pound has fallen to a 31-year low, and analysts are now suggesting that the light at the end of a tunnel might actually be a train, Gary, and they're saying the pound could fall <laughs> as low as a dollar five. Yeah, well, let's hope not. And the other thing we haven't seen yet is Chinese reaction. It's been very quiet. Europe is their biggest market in the world. We have to watch that. And, of course, uh, the main risk to Australian companies will come from the economic weakness in the aftermath of Brexit. Uh, Morgan Stanley's global economists believe the vote to leave will trigger a downturn, if not a recession, in the UK and Europe. And the impact on Australia will primarily be via second-order effects, such as our trade links with Asia. It's still too early to tell if Australia will be regarded as a safe haven or not. But I have to add that prior to the Brexit vote, the uh, Bank of England was warning voters that exiting the European Union will plunge the UK into recession. Now economists are saying it's going to happen. The Fed's warning that it could hurt the global economy. Uh, now, nearly three out of four economists surveyed by Bloomberg after Britain voted to leave the EU said the UK economy will slide into recession. At the same time, uh, I mean, these warnings are really, really worrying, Gary. Yes, indeed they are. And, you know, it's it's still early days and... Uh Everybody's waiting for the other shoe to drop, though. Yes. Now, uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has announced Australia will team up with New Zealand to negotiate new trade and immigration deals in the wake of the Brexit vote, and he's ordered an urgent review from Treasury officials and diplomats over the implications of Britain's exit from the European Union. And Turnbull says he's been in contact with his New Zealand counterpart, John Key, warning the implications of Friday's historic vote were considerable. And he says he wants to establish a collaborative, cooperative framework with New Zealand if he's returned as Prime Minister. Yep. Well, at least he's showing uh, active interest, isn't he, in the middle of the election? Yeah. That's right. Now, despite the jitters in the global financial markets following Britain's decision to exit the EU, Australia's confidence has slipped only slightly, but it still remains close to a multi-year high. But I have to say, Gary, it's still early days. Anyway, the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index declined only one 
0.7% in the week ending the 26th of June, partially offsetting the rise of the previous week. And confidence, of course, has been bolstered by an improving labour market, low interest rates and ongoing strength in the housing market. But it, we are still vulnerable to external influences like Brexit because we are such a small economy, so it could easily fall. That's right. And our dollar's going up as the pound goes down. That's not good either. No, not good at all. Now, uh, BHP Billiton has announced plans to spend $1.2 billion in the come financial year on oil and copper exploration projects. And uh, speaking at Citigroup's Mining Exploration Day in Sydney, BHP Billiton's head of geoscience, Laura Tyler, said the world's biggest mining company saw exploration as value creation and it planned to invest approximately US 900, that's about $1.2 billion Aussie, in exploration in copper and oil next financial year. That represents 18% of BHP Billiton's capital budget. And BHP has reduced exploration operating costs by 70% since 2013. And this year it's increased the targets tested by 44%. Now, it's particularly interested in the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean in Trinidad, Tobago and Barbados, and the Northern Beagle Sub-Basin off the coast of West Australia for the deep water basins. And uh, the Copper Exploration Project has a particular focus on copper porphyry and scarn deposits in Chile, Peru and southwest of the U.S., and sedimentary host of copper deposits in the north of Canada and iron oxide gold deposits in South Australia's Stewart Shelf, adjacent to Olympic Dam. So the new management at BASP is really active. Absolutely. Now, uh, Maine Farmer has announced the largest capital raising this year with plans to raise $888 million to fund a giant pharmaceuticals acquisition, which will put it into the top 25 retail generic drag companies. Maine Pharma is going to pay something like US 652 million or 885 million Aussie for more than 40 generic drugs from Tava Pharmaceutical Industries and Tava's divesting the drugs in connection with its proposed acquisition of Allergen's generic drugs business. Now, Maine Pharma says the acquired portfolio is expected to contribute sales of around US 237 million in the 2017 financial year with gross margins of over 50%. That is a very satisfactory number, Leon. Absolutely. And finally, Gary, Australia's largest dairy cooperative, Murray Goldburn, has slashed the price it will pay farmers for the next season to the lowest possible level. That's at $4.31 for milk solids. And milk processor Fontero is slashing the price to an average $4.75 per kilogram of milk solid. And uh, that's well below the $5 set by Bega Cheese last week and the $4.80 from Saputa Control, Warnable Cheese and Butter. And that's dire news, Gary, for farmers because they say the cost of producing milk is around $5 to $5.50 a kilo. Yeah, and, of course, the cows keep on producing it. But, you know, if this goes on and they stop... Um breeding, uh, we could run them into a milk shortage uh, next year or the year after. I think it's a real issue. I think it's a real issue. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're going to have a chat with Megan Mullier from Asia Link, and she's going to be talking to us all about the connections between Australia and Singapore. Very interesting, that is, too. Yes, indeed, indeed. And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.